Okay, after World War II, the exact opposite ended up happening. Uh, after, hi, are we being recording? So when, when this war-weary America was done with World War II, they said, what we want is this sanitized version of what we had before. We just want to get back to business as usual. Can we please just kind of forget all that happened? All you women that went to the workforce, thank you. Please go back to the, to the home. You know, don't, just, just let's, let's be traditional at a, at a degree that tradition was never traditional. Uh, for instance, shoulder pads. Shoulder pads and, and lapels in men's suits became something that apparently you just had way too much material and you had to use it somewhere. Because it was, it was a caricature of what came before. Everything was a caricature of what came before. If you look at fashions, if you look at, at attitudes of the 1950s, it's like the 1930s or early 40s on steroids. Television shows reflected the importance of traditional American family. The father goes off to a good job and the mother stays home and takes care of the kids. How many, many programs had that as their focus? Not just that as their setting, that is their Focus. There's even a, 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 a one called Father Knows Best, right? We have to make this point that we are, we are traditional, we're traditional, we're traditional, we're traditional. This conscious desire to be comfortably reactionary, to go back and say, let's do what our, our parents did, let's do things the way they were half, half a generation ago, even if we have to artificially create that found a bedfellow in the new, evangelical, uh, new evangelicalism. They became intertwined. This idea that to be a good family man was to go to church and read the Bible, and to be a good Christian was to be a social and political conservative. And everything revolved around, it's perfect. You just, it's, it's, that's, everything's great. Everything's wonderful. Everything's clean. Everything's stylized. It's great. Everything's great. Thank you very much. The good old days. An amazing number of people, when they refer to the good old days now, are referring to like the 50s. In the 50s, we're referring to the good old days. It's a stylized version of, of maybe the 1930s and things. But yeah, if you look at movies in the 30s and 40s, they didn't emphasize stay-at-home families. Those kind of stuff. They didn't emphasize that stuff the way television shows and movies emphasized that in the 50s. Absolutely just pounded that in. Of course, nobody ever gets it perfect, do they? Is it ever perfect? Pardon me? Jesus. Jesus, yeah. Thank you for playing. So Americans were barraged with all these advertisements about creating a stylized perfection. Um, you can wear the cleanest clothes in town. Don't you want a showcase house that you show off to everybody else? You know, that woman is a real competition, but she's a better hostess than you. A lot of these advertisements came about not just looking perfect, making sure you look perfect all the time, but more perfect than they do, whoever they is, right? Rolling Stones song even has a line about, you know, how white my shirts can be and I can't be a man because I don't smoke the same cigarettes that you do, etc. Consumerism skyrockets. Men compete with their neighbors over everything. I love this ad for, Ford, or for Chevrolet where it says, more people named Jones own Chevrolets than any other car. You need to keep up with the Joneses. See how that goes? Yeah. But it's, was that before that phrase, or did that make? Oh no, no, this, no, that's been around since probably at least the twenties and thirties. Because I remember seeing it in old old comics and things. In fact, I think there was even a comic in the newspaper called "Keeping Up with the Jones." Anyway, um, 
But there was this constant competition about, I've got better golf clubs than you, I've got better landscaping than you, what have you. Women competed against other women and idealized versions of what women are supposed to be. So successful marriages start in the kitchen. The harder the wife works, the cuter she looks. An amazing number of ads. It's like if you really want to keep your man, make sure you brush your teeth. If you really want, it's all about constantly saying, do you look good enough? So, this sociopolitical conservatism, this evangelicalism, this competitive consumerism, all become part and parcel of the same thing. Help me out here. How do you think that has affected Christianity? In what ways? Um, because it, come, it boils down to what it all looks like on the outside, and uh, I would say it has nothing to do with what's on the inside. The relationship versus a facade, kind of a pretense of what's supposed to be. Now, there can be people who are extremely solid. I mean, there's people coming out in the 1950s who go to church and look squeaky clean because they love church and they're squeaky clean, right? But how do you know? How can you tell the difference between the person who smiles and is happy and says that they've got a wonderful relationship with their spouse because they're happy and they've got a wonderful relationship with their spouse to the person who says, I'm happy and I have a wonderful relationship with my spouse because I'd never tell you I don't? How can you tell the difference between those two people? The sales of Valium go through the roof in the 50s. I mean, it's, it, it, of people sitting there going, you know what? I'm just going to fake the whole thing. An amazing number of people live in Christian families for whom the main point is not to be a regenerated follower of Jesus Christ, but to make sure that nobody understands what you're really going through in your household. Now, it's not that that didn't exist in the 30s. It's not that that's not going to exist today. It just becomes an institution here. Which makes a lot of sense when you get to the 60s because that was basically what a lot of that was, is rebelling because mm -hmm. it wasn't this squeaky clean. My dad wasn't this good person that everyone saw at church, you know. Yep. Uh, when you get to the late 60s and then the early 70s, these are the children of people who, who force this on them and sit there and go, the one thing I don't want is to look anything like those people. So it's telling that the Jesus People movement of the 1970s is flat out against this. I mean, just, it could not be more polar opposite from this. Everybody's got their own sets of movements. When you get into the 80s, like mid to later 80s, their their children go, you know, I kind of like nice stuff. I, I appreciate that we lived in a commune when I was a kid, but quite frankly, I want a car. You know, and so there's an explosion of megachurches and a very stylized, very slick kind of Christianity in the 80s, in the late 80s and 90s especially. We always have these kind of ripple effects and 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 reactions to things. So the children of people who said, I want to go to slick, cool megachurches in the, in the late 80s and early 90s are now saying, I want postmodern churches that are all about, let's, have, let's drink coffee and eat donuts and interact about the sermon. I want reality. Can we do that? So what kind of churches are Megan's kids going to see popping up? 
in reaction to where we're at right now. Everything's, nothing happens in a vacuum. So, in this context of this new evangelicalism, 1952, Mere Christianity was published. Clive Staples Lewis, right? C.S. Lewis, whom everybody called Jack. Why? Because that's what his dog was named. And his dog died when he was four years old, and he said, from now on, I'm Jack. But he called him Jack. Jacksy is the name of the dog. But anyway, so C.S. Lewis, born and raised in Ireland, sent off to school in England, didn't like England very much. And it was there during his teenage years he became an atheist. Like, that's it. Not interested in this because I'm, I've gone to school now, I've read the philosophers, and quite frankly, Christianity is just kind of passe. I need some intellectual rigorism, and Christianity doesn't give me that intellectual rigorism. In his later book, Surprised by Joy, he actually said he was basically just angry with God for not existing. He's like, I, throughout my teenage years, I decided he didn't, and I got frustrated with him for not, not being the God I had hoped he would be. Went to World War I, that didn't help. Got wounded in World War I, sure didn't help. But he came back, and he was reading the, the, the works of genuinely intelligent guys, deep thinkers like George MacDonald and G.K. Chesterton, that draws him back to thinking about God. He's like, you know, you can be an intelligent person and be a Christian. But it was a late night conversation with his buddy J.R.R. Tolkien one night. Where they stayed up all night talking about God stuff. That's what he credits with his conversion. He's like, that. That's what I wanted to do. I think it's 1929. And in 1931, he accepts Christ and hits the ground running. It's like, I'm going to start writing. He writes all sorts of books. By the time you get to 1942, he's already written multiple popular books, including The Problem of Pain and The Case for Christianity. So in 1952, or 1942, when the BBC's director of religious programming says, I want somebody who's going to be able to just kind of get on the radio and give a Christianity 101. I just want him to explain to people what's going on about Christianity, why they should believe this. Teacher and popular author C.S. Lewis just jumps to the forefront. He's like, you teach at Oxford, and you are like one of the most popular authors out there. Would you do it? C.S. Lewis says, absolutely. Does a series of radio talks from 1942 to 1944 that are eventually compiled in 1952 entitled Mere Christianity, which is actually a term that he got from G.K. Chesterton. Because G.K. 90% of the really well-phrased stuff about Christianity around the turn of the century up to the... G.K. Chesterton. The guy is just beautifully eloquent and really smart. Now, it's important to note before I get any further. Amazing number of modern Christians read, G read mere Christianity and say, it's so complicated. I don't know if I can figure this out. I don't know. It was just... I got halfway through it, I'm just like, I'm lost. Because it's deep, and it's got really good theology and sophisticated arguments, and comments about history in it. And it was originally over the BBC radio for laymen. That's what it was designed for. So help me out here. What does that say about the American school system, or maybe more pointedly about our churches today? If modern Christians hear something that was put on the radio essentially for non-Christians, and we go, I just can't track with that stuff. It's like, you know... Maybe we should be just a little more rigorous in how we're teaching so that people can actually wrap their heads around this kind of stuff. Anyway, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis builds a logical argument for believing not only in God, but in a biblical God. 
starts off by saying there's, there's this moral law. Everybody has a sense of right or wrong. And even if you go from culture to culture, and there might be different rights and wrongs, everybody still has the same sense that there is such a thing as morally right and morally wrong. Shouldn't that suggest something? We're not just... I mean, you look at Rousseau, you look at different theorists, and you're not just built with this hardwired sense of there's stuff you got to do to make society work. We're built, we're hardwired with the sense that there are some things that are morally right, some things that are morally wrong. It's hardwired into the human psyche that there is a law that's bigger than you. It's bigger than your society. It's not just we consider it morally right and wrong, it's that there even is a morally right and wrong. If there is something outside of us that is building a sense of right and wrong in us, there's a lot of different ways to look at the divine, to look at God. And he says, if you really look at the different possibilities you've got out here, the most logical one that makes the most sense is biblical Christianity. The, the biblical Christian God is the one that makes the most sense. And it's in this argument that he builds his classic trilemma. Has anybody heard that expression before? not a dilemma where you have only two choices. He's like, you've got three choices in something. You've got only three choices when it comes to what do you do with Jesus? First off, he's not a good teacher. Please stop quoting him as if he's a good teacher. He's a psychopath. Right? He's running around telling people he's God in the flesh. He's on the same level as the guy who says he's a poached egg. To use C.S. Lewis's phrase. He's bonkers. Please do not cite the crazy person for your moral theories. Either that or he knows full well that he's not God and he's lying. He's evil, right? He either doesn't know he's wrong or he knows he's wrong. Aren't those your only two options? He either doesn't realize he's wrong or he knows full well that he's wrong. Or, or he's telling the truth. Or he's not wrong, right? He's actually God. He's the guy that Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and Jesus says, you got it. Those are your only three options. He knows he's wrong. He doesn't know he's wrong. He's not wrong. Now, there's gradations of this, but in essence, yeah. Do you normally, do you normally hear some guy shuffling down the street, mumbling to himself about how the aliens have taken portions of his brain, but luckily he still has that third eyeball? And you shouldn't kill each other and say, I want, yeah, you know, outside Floyd, I like what he has to say. You know, not the third eyeball on the alien took portions of my brain, but that whole we shouldn't kill each other thing, I want to put that on a t-shirt. Why would you cite him? He's nuts, or he's evil, or he's right. Did so, he coin Flyer Lunatic Order? <laughs> I thought Josh McDowell did, but I didn't I think that, that summation of it, but yeah, this is Okay, so he's the one that came up mm -hmm. with it first. Okay, yeah. that's what I was just wanting to yeah. question, too. I knew that was Lewis. I just didn't know Lewis himself ever used those terms. Or I, I don't, I mean, not, not as a soundbite. I don't think there's any kind of synopsis like that that I recall. Therefore, if, if that's true, if, if biblical Christianity is true, then that demands you actually live it out. Because this isn't just a, huh, that's the way things work. Biblical Christianity is all about, no, you were sculpted a certain way. God has certain will for your life. It isn't just, this is the way the universe works. It's, 
God, we have a creator who was involved in us and sculpted us for a particular purpose. Live like that. Do that. Right? This isn't just a system. This is a relationship with a guy who has an idea of what you should be doing. So you have this logical and theological obligation to actually live the way the Bible says you should live. Now, this isn't me trying to argue all that. This is me trying to give his arguments. But read me Christianity. It's a beautiful synopsis. And hopefully you should understand why we tend to give this out to our college graduates here at, at, at the church. Because we're like, stop and think about this. It's more than just a, well, I like to believe in God. No, there's a logic to it. And if you do... You need to live that out. You know, this is also the same era that the Unification Church is founded. A guy named Moon Yong Myung was born in Korea in 1920, accepted Christ, converted to Christianity as a Presbyterian in 1930. In 1935, had experienced a, a vision at Easter that he should be an evangelist and share Christ, not only in, in Korea, but around the world. 1940, he wrote The Divine Principle, expounding on the truths of scripture, and actually spent five years in a North Korean prison camp because of his views, because of his attempt to share his faith. As a prisoner? As a prisoner. Okay. But Young was undaunted, he returned to South Korea, began the Holy Spirit Association for the Unification of World Christianity. That's the official name of the church that we tend to call the Unification Church because we just don't have that kind of time. <laughs> Starts in 1954, by the end of... Uh, by the way... I should, before I go there, when you think of Korea at this time, you understand why the concept of unification is such a huge deal? It's like, you know, we need to be coming together. This whole splitting apart thing, not healthy. By the end of 55, there's 30 new growing congregations in this movement. The divine principle taught that God, and again, he's coming in from an oriental standpoint, so he's kind of using the, the concept of the yin and yang, that God isn't male. God has masculine and feminine aspects to him. And uh, God created man to be in perfect communion with him. He wants to share joy back and forth. He, he, wants, he wants to give us abundant life, and he wants us to give him joy through worship. We want to be in relationship with all of humanity, but our fall through Adam corrupted that perfect relationship, which is why Jesus came as what Paul called the new Adam, to bring us back into perfect unification with God. Church also taught against the dangers of communism, <clears throat> obvious reasons. And he said, you know, they corrupted society's core foundation of morality and values. Once you remove God from the equation, anything is, is, valid, is valid, as long as it makes you feel good. He used the example of, of strong marriages. He said, this is crucial that we... We have healthy marriages. We avoid sexual sin. We avoid just trying to go on things on our own because we want to echo our perfect unity with God. and It echoes his perfect unity within himself. The Bible talks about that we get married because that reflects what Christ and his church are doing. By 1959, the church had sent missionaries to several countries, even America. So you get missionaries from South Korea to America in the 50s. And that's when he officially changed his name to Sun Myung Moon, which means the word made clear. So instead of being Moon Young Young, he was Moon Sun Myung. Anybody ever hear of Sun Myung Moon? Yeah, good point to mention that this is totally a cult, right? 
really have to wrap your head around. This is totally a cult. And if you find yourself going, well, good, I'm so glad to hear that a strong Christian movement is starting, you should have a kind of a feel to yourself, because that's exactly what he was trying for. He wanted you to think this is totally a Christian group. When Moon said that God had masculine and feminine elements, what he meant is that he and his wife were God. They are the masculine and feminine elements. They're God in the flesh. And that their male and female perfection, clearly more perfect than Jesus, because Jesus never got married. If he had just gotten married instead of going to the cross, he would have been a more perfect savior, like, you know, the Reverend Sun Young Moon is. But they constitute a perfect example for everyone to follow, which is why they so strongly emphasize marriage. He was so proud of the fact he did 30,000 members. No, 30,000. I don't even think it was 30,000. Yeah, it was. Was it 30,000 members or was it 30,000 marriages? Was it 60,000? I don't remember. I think let's pretend for a moment it's just 30,000 people. That's enough, isn't it? 15,000 marriages all at once? One gigantic marriage ceremony? Was this in Korea? No, that's in, that's in America. What year was that? Oh, he, he's done multiple okay. mass things. So this pictures in the paper at that time. Oh yeah, it's just dozens of mass, mass, mass things. I think it's like in the nineties. Okay. Which okay though, because he personally figured out your mate for you. Most of those couples never met each other prior to the day they got married, oh but they were all so happy <clears throat> because you know God picked out their their mate for them. Please ignore the fact that Moon's first wife divorced him because he was a nut. She's like, you have stepped away from Christianity. You are a crazy person. He doesn't talk much about her. Didn't, didn't say much. She just, if you read through any of their literature, she's almost never even mentioned. And if she is, it's like, yeah, she just couldn't handle his devotion to his church. Since the Moons were the true parents, because they're perfect, they're the true parents to us all, then it would be a cruelty, cruelty, to send their, their, their true family members back to broken, imperfect homes, wouldn't it? I mean, if they could be with their true parents, their good family, the, the true family, then to send them back to their broken families, that's just, that's just mean. So yeah, church members are no longer allowed to go back home. Once you, once you join the Moonies, you're, you're there. Right, Moonies, that's a derogative term, but... You know. But... Once you're part of that group, you don't go back. You don't have any contact with your family. And if the family tries to contact the church, they've never heard of you. But that's okay. It makes total sense to the, to the members, especially after they've gone to a couple of weekends where they just never got around to sleeping or eating, and they were just constantly listening to, to uh, sermon after sermon and teaching after teaching about how Sun Yun Moon really is God when you think about it, and everybody just loves them so much, and they just played so much, and everybody just kept hugging, and we all cried, and it was amazing. <laughs> Why don't I just give them all my money? All of which are classic brainwashing techniques to break down critical thinking. In fact, families began hiring detectives to actually kidnap their, their children back from the Moonies for taking their children to deprogrammers to help try to undo what all this has been worked in them. Then again, I have to comment, there are a lot of people out there that say, no, 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 they weren't brainwashing. This is all blown out of proportion. Yes, there are some things that they do that echo some brainwashing techniques, but Baptists do this on their weekend retreats sometimes too. It just happens. So don't read into it. No. Nah. But Moon did employ conscious deception over and over and over again 
to attract new followers. He was a master at getting people to support or join groups without telling them that they were unification church things. For instance, huge inaugural World Convention of the Family Federation for World Peace and Unification was held in the National Building Museum in Washington, D.C. in 1996. Huge big thing. Thousands of people there. Featured speakers like Bill Cosby, Gerald Ford, Pat Boone, even Pastor Robert Schuller. Who had no idea that this had anything to do with, with Unification Church. And most of whom actually tried to get out of it once they realized it was. Bill Cosby is like, I'm not doing this. I'm a Christian. I'm not going to do this. And he's like, but I was contractually obligated. But I looked at him like, what, Gerald Ford's coming? Well, Robert Schuller's coming? Pat Boone's coming? Yeah, I can be in part of this. Signed off on it, and they're like, you, you, you have to do this. You have a contract to do this. And of course, Sun Young Moon gets his picture taken with all these guys, puts it in the things, and from then on, those are used as publicity for other things. When you look at some of the places that they, they have, the, the, the um, Collegiate Association for the Research of Principles, the Assembly of World Religions, the New York, Symphony, New York City Symphony, the Washington Times, New World Communications, who owns United Press International, when you see UPI in a, in a news story, um, True World Foods, who distribute most of the United States sushi goods. Yeah, all this Unification Church stuff. Anytime that any of that, that you hear any of that, that's Sun Yun Moon stuff. Would you naturally assume that? Would you naturally assume if somebody wants you to go to the American Clergy Leadership Conference, what you're doing is going to learn about how Sun Yun Moon is, in fact, God in the flesh? No. Bear in mind that this is all kind of new. There's other brainwashing cults that are popping up here. 1952, or 53, well, 52 is when Dianetics came out. 53 is when Scientology started as a religion, also consciously using brainwashing techniques. In the early 60s, you got David Berg's Children of God cult, and then later the Hare Krishna movement. Over and over, you've got these cults that are consciously using brainwashing techniques to, to lower people's cognitive dissonance, to lower people's critical thinking. And break it down so that they'll accept just about anything. Was, did Moon try to do this in Korea too? Mm -hmm. or does he have that? Or did, with communists? South Korea. Oh, yeah. okay. He was convicted of tax evasion in the United States in 82, spent some time in prison, died in 2012, but the Moonies are still alive and well, doing great. Now, I do this because somebody the other day said, we don't hear much about the Moonies anymore. Are they even still active? I share this because... You don't hear much about the Moonies anymore, do you? And that was something I remember hearing about when I was a kid. But obviously they're not, you know, doing stuff now. Actually, it's interesting. In 91, they even encouraged members to go back to their families, back to their communities, to evangelize. So they're not only, they're not only still around, they're, they're active. You just rarely hear them talk about the Unification Church. So they're so comfortable in the brainwashing that they can send them out now. Mm -hmm. Same year that Brown versus the Board of Education ruling came out. Okay, when we talk about ripple effects, anytime you talk about ripple effects, you have to understand that ripple effects, there are different ripple effects, and they sometimes collide with or conflict with one another. For instance, you have a 1950s focus on being comfortably reactionary, hyper-traditionalist, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, right? That's the normative ideal. All of the images I've included in 1950s America have had only white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Have you noticed that? Did you notice that when I was showing them to you? No, but 
But that was even, I wasn't even consciously trying to do that. I was just looking for 1950s ads, 1950s, all white Anglo-Saxon Protestant families. But now you have a generally improved economy. You have people who fought alongside other races, other ethnicities in the war. You're now actually starting to read the Bible, and you're realizing there's no real good reason to keep other ethnicities down. Actually, everybody deserves this kind of economic, political, relational opportunities. So you have one set of people saying, we're going to be a hyper-traditionalist, hyper waspy kind of world, and another set of evangelicals who are saying, I'm uncomfortable with that. So what happens when those two come together? The, the television program that, that helped the most in 1951 to bridge the gap between traditional family and cross-cultural, cross-ethnic relationships Anybody know what broke the barrier? 1951. 1951. No, this is a, a decade before that. Room 222. I love Lucy. Traditional family values of a white woman married to a Cuban. Oh, yeah. Changed the world in 1951. CBS was extremely reticent to carry it because they're like, this. This sort of cross-racial relationship, I just don't know. But she had become so popular in movies that they kind of felt like they had to do it. And once the, once the show went on, they gave it like a test run, and everybody just went bananas over it. Changed the way the world looked at relationships. In fact, for those of you that mentioned this, later on, a decade later, studios refused to carry this sci-fi show about other, other races and other creeds and other... Nations working together in the future happily. You got a woman on the a black woman on the bridge, an officer. You've got a Russian as a helmsman. No, we're not carrying this show. It was incredibly controversial. Is it any wonder that it was Desilu Studios that said, "Yeah, we'll produce it." Kind of important. I know everybody looks like a. I love Lucy. Star Trek. <laughs> Silly, like world changing. Anyway, so you got evangelicals who embrace civil rights for everybody and evangelicals who embrace white privilege and their ripples meet. What happens? Well, you get Brown versus the Board of Education. Remember the whole Plessy versus Ferguson thing we talked about before, back in 1896, that had created the separate but equal accommodations for railway cars? Mm -hmm. Said separate but equal is just fine. Howard Ferguson, the judge, uh, decided there's nothing technically unconstitutional about having separate railway, railway cars for different races, is there? If they're genuinely equal, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you can't have separate railway cars. Perfectly fine. Separate but equal gets to be fine. The decisions upheld by uh, higher courts, since separate but genuinely equal stuff doesn't violate the Equal Protection Clause, which says that you need to have equal protection under the law. Right? that no state can deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Whether you're in that railway car or that one doesn't really matter. The problem is, is that there's no such thing as separate but equal. The moment you separate, you tend to get very unequal things. If nothing else, in attitude, but almost always in practice, there is no such thing as separate but absolutely equal. Even if even if these two water fountains were exactly the same, to know that you have to walk past this one to drink at that one. 
Doesn't that do something? There is no such thing as separate but equal. So finally, in 1954, the argument was made that segregation is detrimental to the mental health, the emotional health, the self-esteem of children of color. To know that they are not wanted, to know that they have to walk past something, to know that this is a white neighborhood or a white school, that is itself detrimental, which means that they're being denied equal protection under the law because their mental health, their self-esteem is not being protected. And I'm like, booyah, that's the argument. In 1896, the argument that separate railway cars are unconstitutional, no, they aren't. But in 1954, the argument that the concept of segregation is itself psychologically damaging? Absolutely. So, class action suit is brought against the school board of Topeka, Kansas, saying, you can't do this. Making some poor girl walk to school that's over a mile away to school when there's a school just a couple blocks from her house? This messes with you. And the Supreme Court ultimately agreed. And Brown versus the Board of Education struck down the Separate but equal thing. Separate but equal is now a legally dead concept. But just because it's legally dead doesn't mean it's relationally dead. Doesn't mean it's sociologically dead. Clearly, there's a lot of people who felt strongly against segregation, right? But there's a lot of people who felt very strongly for maintaining segregation. Saying this is a bad thing. We should not integrate our schools or, or anything. So think about the stress on these children who are walking to school on that first day walking through this gauntlet of people saying, we don't want you. You are bad for doing this. We hate the fact that you exist in our schools. It's hard for us to even mentally picture that sort of thing today. How would you respond to those who would argue that God is the author of segregation, as this sign says? Wow. How would you respond? God is the author of segregation because... It's our fault for building the Tower of Babel. The sign points to Genesis 9:25, where ashamed Noah declares, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. God is the author of this. Ironic that they didn't even just go to racial stuff. They went to Genesis and said, slavery is something that God is the author of. Not just segregation, but slavery. How would you respond? Okay, I'm going to ask maybe a more pointed question that I'd rather you not answer. Would you respond? Or would you say in a, in a Sunday school class and shake your head and go, can't understand? Or would you get up in, into their faces and say, you've taken Genesis out of its context. You've mangled the word of God. You're quoting Noah with a hangover who's ashamed of things, who is saying that, his grandson should be a slave because of what one of his sons did to embarrass him, and you said that that justifies your hatred of other races? How dare you? 1957, Arkansas Governor Orville Falbus. No clue where that name comes from. Orville Falbus. The cry we saw as federal encroachment on state rights sent the Arkansas National Guard to prevent black children from being integrated into schools. Armed National Guardsmen say, no, you don't go in. Wow. has maintained that his rationale was to eliminate the violence. He said 80-something or 81, 82% of the people polled said that there would be violence in the community if this happened. So he said, nope, 
I will remove the source, remove the cause of the violence, i.e., the integrated students. If there are no black students in the school, there will not be any violence against black students or by black students. President Eisenhower responded by sending a division of the United States Army in to fight the Arkansas National Guard. So how intense is that particular standoff, do you think? Could you imagine that? The Arkansas National Guard is standing there, and the United States, you know, the, an airborne division comes in and says, you will allow these students in, or we will kill you. We have more guns than you do. Do you want this fight? Eisenhower, by the way, is brilliant. He said, by the way, the Arkansas National Guard, you're now federalized. National Guards are now technically under the national government, not the state government. So, you can stand with your brothers in the Airborne Division, or you can be in defiance of the federal government who is now in charge of you. If you stand with your governor, whom you've always stood with as the National Guard, if you stand with your governor, you are in treason against the United States of America. So we're not only going to shoot you, you're a traitor. To their credit, the National Guard went, we're Americans! <laughs> we're more Americans than we are in Arkansas. Come right ahead. Filed this, wait a minute, correctly said, federal government doesn't get to tell a state what to do in their own public schools. State schools, you don't get to tell us what to do. And he's absolutely right. And Eisenhower said, oh, this isn't about public schools and educational theory. This is about you thumbing your nose at a Supreme Court ruling. You don't get to do that. I don't care whether you do that in a restaurant or at a place of business, uh, uh, accounting agency, or at a school. This isn't about what you're doing in public schools. This is about you resisting the, the United States government and the Supreme Court. Just to clarify, just in case you might sit there and go, wow, oh, pretty cut and dry. No, it's not. Not even remotely. There are a lot of black leaders, including Malcolm X, who supported Fabus, said, no, it's detrimental to shove black children into a school system where they're not wanted. I love the quote from Malcolm X. Only a fool would let his enemy teach his children. Why would we send our children into the den of the enemy? 1958, Gallup poll found that Faubus was among the top 10 men in the world most admired by Americans. A poll that included many African Americans. When he ran for governor in the next two elections, 60 and 64, and won, he garnered 80, 81% of the black vote in Arkansas? Why? They looked at him as that they, he was actually protecting them? That's more the, than being... I would be, yeah. Well, first off, he's a Democrat. And they're like, there's no way I'm ever voting Republican. Can you imagine an election where somebody says, oh, I'll vote this demon in because he happens to be from my political party? <laughs> but, crazy. yeah, I know, isn't it? <laughs> So he's a Democrat, but also because a lot of Southern blacks said, there's a, there's a tradition here. There's traditional values, and he's supporting the traditional values, whether because they see it as protection or they see it as the way things ought to be or the way things always were or the way things my grandpa had. It. He's traditionalist. Or how many of them had the right to vote then? Well, at, at this point in history, no. the right to vote, all of them. Yes, the opportunity to vote, vote, yeah. Yeah, so that might be another reason. Uh, uh, but he did get, you know, 80% of the black voters voted for him. Yeah. But yes, you're right. There, there is, that, there is that. 
colorful bit to the to the to the statistics there too. This is also the same era where the McCarthy hearings began. And everybody goes, oh, McCarthy. 1950, Senator McCarthy, Wisconsin Senator McCarthy, made national headlines when he spoke at the Republican Women's Club of Wheeling, West Virginia. You know, why would that make public headlines? Because he pulled out a piece of paper and said, the State Department is infested with communists. I have here in my hand a list of 205, a list of names that were made known to the Secretary of State as being members of the Communist Party and who nevertheless are still working and shaping policy in the State Department. I have documented evidence of 205, or sometimes he said 81, or sometimes he said 57, or sometimes he said 284. He kept changing the numbers. They never let anybody see the lists. So for all I know, it could have been his laundry list. But he had the names, and people were scared. Now, on this side of the Cold War, we tend to look at it and go, what a nut. No, of course we're not going to listen to somebody like that. What a blowhard. But remember, over the last three years, we've seen the communist world all but double in size. Comic books are saying, there's this red iceberg, and we're sailing right toward it, because an argument could be made that we were. And we have to remember there really were spies in America for the Soviet Union. We tend to think, of, not really. Yeah, yeah, really. You ever hear of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg? Convicted of being spies in 51. He'd been stationed at the Army, uh, at the Signal Corps Engineering Laboratory since 1940. He was fired in 45 when the Army said, wait a minute, you have a background with the Communist Party? We're firing you. And we say, that's awfully paranoid to fire somebody just from being a member of the... But he'd been working for the Soviets since 1942. The last three years, he'd been actively funneling information to them, to the, to the NKVD, which is the precursor to the KGB. With the help of his wife, Ethel, he recruited other key personnel in other agencies to be spies. And he leaked information about these, the specifications of early jets, which is why the Soviets got a jet program faster than they should have. Thank you, Julius Rosenberg. Key information about the last Almos project, which is why the Soviets had the atomic bomb by 1949. Thank you, Julius Rosenberg. Even technical data that helped the Soviets shoot down U.S. pilot Gary Powers in 1960. And he remained a prisoner of the Soviets for almost two years. Thank you, Julius Rosenberg. By the time the Rosenbergs were convicted uh, in 1951, the U.S. military and State Department really were riddled with spies. There were tons of spies in key positions. Of course, you could argue we were very proud of our spies in the Soviet bloc, right? And we're the ones that made that YouTube spy plane that Gary Powers was flying. So, ain't nobody clean here, but still. In addition, we already talked a couple weeks ago about the fact that Nikita Khrushchev was running around throwing threats out saying, whether you like it or not, history is on our side, we will bury you. And I did look it up after some people brought it up. His literal words are, we will bury you. It's literally what the words mean. But there is this nuance. It could potentially mean, we'll, we'll be the ones who see you in your grave. We'll dance on your grave. I know you'll die before we will, and we'll be very happy. We'll have a party when you do. Kind of depends on the intent. When asked later his intent, Nikita Khrushchev said, we must take a shovel and dig a deep grave and bury colonialism as deep as we can and then drive in a stake so that this evil will never be reborn. Which, in my mind, clarifies his intent. You know? So, you can see why Americans are kind of scared at this moment, right? Of this red menace. 
Communism is growing. The Soviet leader has repeatedly publicly expressed the desire to destroy democracy. The Soviets now had nuclear capabilities, and those capabilities have been achieved in part due to the damaging work of Soviet spies in the United States who look just like you and your neighbor. Would that be scary? Very. Yeah. Even in Hollywood, communists were essentially becoming the new horror movie villains, right? I married a communist. How scary is that? So when a senator says he could save us from the Red Menace, people are like, oh, oh, okay, please, please do. Anything you can learn about that from, for today's church? If you're scared enough and a demagogue comes up and says, I will save you from what you're scared of, you will take critical thinking set it by the side of the road and follow them. What can we learn about that from, for today's church? You can answer it politically, but just even specifically within the church itself. What does that suggest? Okay, so it's it's putting faith in, in some guy instead of God necessarily. Yeah. And we as people tend to let our fear override our faith, uh, when it should be our faith preventing our fear. Yeah. How wise is it to scramble to follow anybody that makes you feel less uncomfortable? I mean, you can cross-apply this, like I said, you can cross-apply this to political leaders, you can cross-apply this to, to demagogues within the church that, that create fear, but also just anytime that anybody says, there is no hell. We all just end up happy, and you go, well, that makes me feel more comfortable. That's what I'll follow then. Why? Because you think that's what the Bible says? I don't know, but that made me feel much more comfortable. There's an inherent danger to that sort of thing. We see that the Bible gives us that example. I was just with my Bible lesson this week. You know, we went from Hosanna, Hosanna, and one week we went to crucify. Yep. And it was mostly because of the leaders convincing those people that. <coughs> I mean, they went from this Barabbas guy who was a murderer to go ahead and let him out, but let's do, let's kill this other guy. And human nature hasn't changed any in 2,000 years. And contrary to Star Trek The Next Generation, it won't in the next 300 years. Human nature is human nature. It is what it is. You have to change the human nature of given individual humans, right? People don't just become more Christian as a society. We, society evolves into more Christianliness. Doesn't work like that. Individuals have to have to move from death to life. All right, McCarthy's spun all this notoriety into becoming the head of a bunch of different committees and subcommittees, who uh, whose investigations were really nasty. I mean, they, they were trumped up charges, badgering witnesses, circumstantial evidence. It was really unpleasant. But they kept finding different things, just enough genuine stuff. That, that, that people kept listening to him. And they'd be like, completely unfair to Cliff, completely unfair to Eric, completely unfair to Sarah, completely unfair to Judy. And wait a minute. We actually found some dirt on Judy. And so just about the time that anybody listening would be like, I think we've had about enough. Well, wait a minute. We actually found something on Judy that we wouldn't have found otherwise. We didn't find anything on Judy, but you know what I'm saying. So, so he stayed in it. In the summer of 1954, he went up against the U.S. Army. Long story. In a series of hearings that lasted 36 days, were broadcast live on the DeMont and ABC television networks. 
everybody's watching these live hearings where he's talking about all the stuff that's going wrong in the United States Army. And here's the thing, after a month of watching McCarthy actually in person, even the people who had been hearing about stuff that McCarthy had been uncovering and saying, boy, I'm so glad you know, Tail Gunner Joe is there for us. I, I'm so glad that we've got this guy here. After watching for a month, people are like, wait, is this the way he's been doing this? I haven't seen him before. I haven't seen this in person. See, on television changed things. You can even point to one brief exchange between Senator McCarthy and the Army Special Counsel, a guy named Joseph Welch from the law firm of Hale and Dorn, as the moral pivot point of the proceedings. Anybody familiar with this? After weeks and weeks of, of McCarthy just badgering everybody, just raking mud, through, everybody through the mud, McCarthy then falsely accused Welch of baiting the committee's chief counsel, Roy Cohn. And then was like, I didn't. And even Cohn said, no, he didn't. But McCarthy kept pounding that drum and then turned around and attacked a young lawyer in Welch's firm, saying, well, you know, if you're going to be complaining about people, what about this guy, this, this Fred Fisher? He had been a member of the National Lawyers Guild years ago, and the National Lawyers Guild has ties with communism. What about that? And Welch was like, okay, he was young, and he's not a member of that anymore. Let's move on. McCarthy's like, yeah, but he was a member of a communist group. He's like, well, it's not a communist group. It has some ties to communism, and he's not anymore. Please, let's move on. No, but... As early as 95% because he disagreed with McCarthy and 5% because he's on CBS McCarthy's on ABC at the moment. <laughs> McCarthy just, just crumples, implodes. By December of that year, the Senate voted 67 to 22 to censure McCarthy, and he was replaced as senator the next month. Now, public confidence in McCarthy faith, the fear of the godless communists, because they're very atheistic, right? Yeah. The godless communists, that, that's still going on. And he, he, he trumped this up to a fever pitch. 
pro-America sentiment was at an all-time high, especially among evangelical Christians. Because us being the Christian America against them being the godless communists, that has never been louder than this point in history. So it shouldn't surprise you that this is the point in history where the Pledge of Allegiance gets modified. Familiar with the background of this? 1892, Baptist minister and Christian socialist. Francis Bellamy proposed a salute to the U.S. flag for his students at his school. I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands, one nation, individual, indivisible, with liberty, equality, and fraternity for all. Right? Stealing lines from, well, indivisibility, liberty, equality, fraternity from the French Revolution, right? As any good socialist should. Or death. Pardon me? Or death. He didn't include, didn't include that for the, for the school children. Now, he ran afoul of his school superintendents and the board, uh, who rightly thought that he was saying, wait, are you saying equality for women and blacks and things like that, too? He's like, yeah! I'm like, no. I'm not going to have school children say that. So he changed it with liberty and justice for all. Is that a little less offensive? I still got liberty in there. So, okay, maybe I can't say we're all brothers and I can't say we're all equal, but can I at least say we are all free? Like, sure, sure, go for that. By 1942, the pledge had changed to become more specific because they realized, well, saying my flag, we bring in more and more immigrants, maybe we should specify the United States flag, not just my flag. Pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That's the, that's the thing. Actually, the salute that you're supposed to give to the flag, after World War II, that whole stretched arm Hitlery salute, People don't like that so much anymore. That kind of lost its charm. That's and so... A little spooky. A little spooky. Yeah. And so, by the way, you'll find a gazillion pictures like this all over the internet where it's like, we used to be Nazis. You know, no. <laughs> Hitler messed up a whole salute and a whole mustache style. So nobody can do any of those ever again in the United States. And a name. Can't name your kid Adolf. People are going to look at you funny. And the swastika. And the swastika. Ruined lots of perfectly... Not horrible in and of themselves things. Anyway, so Congress mandated that people either put their right hand over their heart or do a military salute, you know, whatever's appropriate. You don't have to do the, the, uh, the Nazi outstretched arm. So there's lots of changes that have gone over the years. By the end of the decade, various church groups were starting to include the words under God in their versions of the pledge. Because Abraham Lincoln said under God in the Gettysburg Address. So we can put under God in our Pledge of Allegiance. Two aren't necessarily related, but it's clearly American-y words, so we can do that. 1954, Pastor George McPherson Doherty preached that our pledge should officially include the words under God, because our nation is Christian. We have a Christian foundation, so can't we officially put those words in there? As luck would have it, no, he actually knew this, as luck would have it, a newly baptized Dwight Eisenhower happened to be in his congregation that morning because it was like President's Day morning. And presidents always go to that church because that was Lincoln's church, and so they're always there. So he knew that. Anyway, the point is, is Eisenhower was in the, in the congregation that day, and the very next day Eisenhower said, okay, I'm going to introduce legislation to that effect. I absolutely agree. From this day forward, the millions of our school children will daily proclaim in every city and town, every village and rural schoolhouse, the dedication of our nation and our people to the Almighty. Kill. Immediate backlash. 
People say, you can't do that! Most of it led by an atheist activist named Joseph Lewis, who argued that it violated the separation of church and state. You can't have the state saying, we dedicate ourselves to the Almighty. You can't do that. But the Supreme Court said, wait, 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 wait. Any child can just skip those words. It's not a hardship. It's not like they're going to go to jail if they skip those words. So the idea that they are forced to do this, no. Encouraged, yes. But the idea that it's a hardship on the child, no. And as to your church and state thing, I love the way that the New York State Justice Isidore Buchstein uh, said this, because I think this is a wonderful synopsis of the, understand, the proper understanding of the church and state stuff in the Constitution. He said that the separation was conceived to prevent and prohibit the establishment of a state religion. It was not intended to prevent or prohibit the growth and development of a religious state. The separation of church and state in the Constitution was there to make sure that the United States can't create or control religion. It was never intended to say, we don't have it. Of course we can encourage this, which is why they say we can support religion in general. The United States government can't support a particular religion, but it can be supported in general, which is why presidents can still be inaugurated with an oath that includes the words, so help me God. Or why our national motto can be, in God we trust. We get to do that, because we don't have to pretend to be an atheistic state. We don't want to divorce ourselves from our own faith. We just can't tell people what faith they should have. By the way, it's in this context that In God We Trust became our national motto. Same basic time period, right? Never had an official motto before, did we? Was there ever a motto of the United States? That was just a nifty phrase. We put that on our national seal, but it wasn't a motto. It wasn't an official motto. By the way, shiny nickel for you after the class. Cause, yeah, we just, we just tossed it on there. It was never actually... It's on the nickel, too, yeah. It's... It was never an official thing. By the way, the fact that our motto is In God We Trust was in the fourth stanza of the Star Spangled Banner, which nobody ever sings. Be honest. You get to the end of the first stanza and you go, I'm exhausted. <laughs> nobody sings more than the first stanza. You're never going to get all the way to the fourth one where it says, and this be our motto, In God Is Our Trust. So again, somebody said it before. That should be our motto. 1873, the Coinage Act stated that the Secretary of the Treasury may cause the motto, In God We Trust, to be inscribed on such coins as shall admit of such a motto. If you want to put it on there, knock yourself out. So there's a, it's there. In the wake of all these modifications of the pledge, and within the context of American conservatism, making that the official motto of the, of the nation, all the evangelicals said, yeah, makes total sense. We even have socio-political backstory to it. And the Catholics and the Jews and even the Muslims and Hindus of the United States all said, yeah, that's fine. We have a nice, solid religious background. Any problem? Atheists. The atheists are like, what, we are theocracy now? <coughs> Is that the way this works? And if you find yourself, that's just silly. I do like this little meme online. The newly redesigned dollar bill. If it said, in Allah we trust, how comfortable would you be having that in your wallet and using that? I would not like it. Then you understand why somebody who doesn't believe in your God, seeing in God we trust on their bill, is uncomfortable. Right? I totally get it. Really? Okay. So court case after court case comes along and tried to have the motto removed. 
and changed back to e pluribus unum, even though that was never actually the motto to begin with. But in 1970, the U.S. Court of Appeals decided it is quite obvious that the national motto and the slogan on coinage and currency, in God we trust, has nothing whatsoever to do with the establishment of religion. Its use is of patriotic or ceremonial character. 1984, the U.S. Supreme Court decided such practices as the designation of in God we trust as our national motto or the references to God contained in the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag can best be understood as a form of ceremonial deism protected from the establishment cause scrutiny chiefly because they have lost through rote repetition any significant religious content. Reason number 482 why I really don't like rote repetition. That's never really like that. I understand there's a benefit to it, but it always makes it a little queasy. So, for those of us who would defend putting in God we trust on our coinage of defending one nation under God in our pledge, how comfortable are you with defending it as merely a ceremonial deism that has no significant religious content? It doesn't mean anything. Help me out here. Isn't that what the most absolute liberal theologies say? Do whatever you want to do, because none of it means anything. Ironically, it's the most conservative theologians who are jumping up and down and saying, right, 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 we should keep it on the coinage. Because it's not like it means anything. It doesn't mean anything if it doesn't mean anything to you. Exactly. And it doesn't mean anything to the U.S. Supreme Court or to the U.S. Court of Appeals, to the Secretary of Treasury, to 90% of the people involved in the process. And be honest, does it mean anything to you every time you look at your coin? Every time you see that, do you go, you're right, I should trust God. Or do you go, yeah, that's the national motto? Or do you look at it and not even think about that at all? Not that it's horrible. Just does your nickel have religious significance to you every time you see it? Or do you also gloss that over in your mind because of rote repetition? You get used to it, so it doesn't mean anything to you when you see it. i got to come back to how much of our Christianity has become more about doing things that look Christian that don't necessarily mean anything, rather than being regenerated children of God and ambassadors of the kingdom. Are we genuinely, when we talk about being part of a Christian nation, or that we want to be a Christian nation, or that we want to be Christians, are we genuinely saying we move from death to life? We are changed, regenerated people. Or do we mean, I grew up in a church. I do churchy type things. I'm reminded of what both Isaiah and Jesus said that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Same year that the People's Temple was founded, and that's where we'll pick it up next time. But what would you say when you look at this? Where are we at in history? Where are we at as a church? Repeat. Okay, it's always a repeat. There's nothing new under the sun. But what else? think we've glossed over just what you were just explaining with all that stuff you know I just went to a seminar last night about prophecy and that and it's just mostly old people there's hard, there was hardly any young people there well and and what's interesting is a lot of what made the prophecy movement not all not all but a lot of what made the prophecy movement soar in the United States is how much of prophecy had to do with the United States 
you know, we are the great eagle here, and then the Soviet Union's the bear, and we have Apache helicopters. We did, here's where America fits into prophecy, and you go, at what point are we moving at this stage in history from being Christians focused on scripture to being Christians focused on America? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to, to be part of your church, to be regenerated believers, to be changed inside and out. And I pray, Lord, help us to love the people around us. Help us to love our country. Help us to love our world, broken though they are. But I pray, Lord, help us to always remember that first and foremost, we are citizens of heaven. We are children of God. Help us, Lord, to be your people, first and foremost. Not just outside, but inside. In Jesus' name, amen.